You're listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Vicky Marinka, a podcast bringing you interesting conversations about careers in communications. Today, I'm talking with Linda Griffin. Linda is a public affairs and public policy expert and is currently the vice president of public policy for the entertainment company Activision, Blizzard and King, famous for games like Call of Duty and Candy Crush. In today's episode, we'll be delving into the mysterious world of lobbying and public policy and looking at how Linda built a successful career as an outsider. Welcome to the podcast, Linda. Thank you, Vicky. I always start by asking a couple of questions which give you a chance to introduce yourself. So let's dive in. Give me your elevator pitch and how you describe yourself to strangers. Sure. So there's a what and there's a how. So what I do is I protect and I advocate for my business so that potential changes to rules or new laws are fair in us. How I do that is basically by working with policymakers and as part of the political process. I supply data and arguments to back up my positions. I also help demystify the tech ecosystem, which is a really important part of my world. Um, So dialogue, working with wider groups with shared interests, such as think tanks, NGOs, academics. So I have a lot of different stakeholders. Can you give me a potted history of your career in just a few sentences? So I think I've taken a lot of risks. I uh, moved to China for my first job when I was 20 years old, fresh out of university. So I've worked across Asia, the Middle East and Europe. I've always been interested in the international angle in politics. I started off working in a think tank that was very much focused on Chinese politics. Then I went into political consultancy. So I had clients who were international governments, multinational companies working in banking, property, food, healthcare. And then I discovered the world of tech. So can you explain what lobbying and public policy specialists do? So when you work in public policy, what you're really trying to do is, if you're working for a business, to represent that business and to make sure that they have a say and are able to input into changes that might affect the industry that they work in or themselves specifically. And lobbying isn't just about big businesses. You know, if you're a trade union, um, uh, work in the charity sector, an individual citizen, you all have a democratic right to lobby. The key is about being transparent and accountable. So I'm going to address the elephant in the room with a potentially controversial question. Lobbying might have a reputation for being a dark art. It can maybe bring to mind cash for question scandals or cronyism. Why do you think that lobbying has that reputation? Well, first off, I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with lobbying. In democracies, we're entitled to represent ourselves to elected officials. And politicians can't know everything. Most politicians, not all, are generalists. So they need, if they're working on whether a big infrastructure project, they're looking at AI, uh, they're trying to create new laws on online safety, they can't be expected to know everything. So what they need to is have access to lots of information. So civil servants can help them with that, but also different views from different stakeholders that will be affected by those changes in law. So I think it's a really important thing. We can lobby ourselves by writing a letter to our MP and the UK, for instance, businesses, individuals, charities, unions, the list go on. Um, We all have a right to lobby. Now, the key is that politics is about power and has massive influence over people's lives. And where you see a lot of power, of course, you're going to see certain examples of corruption close to those centers of power. So I think as well, the US political system hasn't helped with the reputation of lobbying. This isn't casting aspersions anywhere, but 
their political system is very much focused on money and fundraising and big packs. That hasn't helped. We have the same over in Europe, you know, in the UK, for example, there's questions around government contracts in the UK being given to personal contacts of officials in government. We see this a lot over the years. But I think going back to the point at the start of this, it's not inherently a bad thing. It is actually a really important thing. I would not want my right as a, as a citizen to lobby to be and to speak to my elected officials to be taken away from me. The key is transparency and accountability, being clear as a policymaker about who you're seeing, why, making sure you take into account lots of people's opinions and try and come to the best decision that will please the most people. Can you give me an example of a policy that you've been involved in influencing? Working in technology has been really interesting in terms of trying to influence policies because a lot of regulation that tech needs isn't quite there yet because we're talking about new technologies that are doing new things for the first time. Often people have referred to working in tech as the wild west of policymaking because there are no real rules to govern it. I don't necessarily think that's true. But I have worked on really big uh, pieces of legislation that people will be aware of, like GDPR, which is controversial for lots of different reasons, but also a huge milestone in terms of giving us as European citizens, you know, an understanding of what rights we have in terms of our personal data. It's such a huge regulation. I think it was never going to be perfect and without a lot of bureaucracy, but in 2012, when that was proposed by the European Commission, I was working at Facebook and it took a couple of years, well, actually more than a couple of years, I think four years for that to be finalized and agreed. There were so many different stakeholders involved, but I was really proud to have played a part in that. Now, some people might think working for a big Silicon Valley tech company, all we wanted to do was uh, take down um, that piece of legislation, but actually we wanted to make it work from a technical perspective. And of course, to be fair on what we felt was, you know, a good result for our business. So I think that's a really interesting file as a lobbyist when it's not just about your business specifically or your sector, but it affects a lot of different people. How do you get heard? How do you make your points resonate with the key decision makers? Um, how do you source data? And what type of data is interesting to uh, highlight your points? How do you find allies who agree with your perspective on different parts of the file, on different amendments? It's a really complex procedural piece of work uh, that has lots of different dots which you need to tie together. So I think working on GDPR was a real uh, milestone, I would say, in my career. And what are you working on at the moment? So across the EU and in the UK, there are new proposals that are in the very early stages about how do we create new rules to govern speech online? I think that's one of the most important and interesting questions um, for businesses and for public policy specialists and for policymakers uh, that we have to grapple with right now. And there is a lot of very strong opinions. There's a lot of fear and worry, and it's all very credible. That aside, I think it's a really fascinating time to be working on issues about online speech and how we create rules, how we govern and self-regulate as different sectors uh, in terms of protecting free speech, but also protecting people uh, from harm online. And there's no black and white answer to that right now. I want to talk about public policy from a careers perspective. 
is public policy a closed shop? So let's say I was at the beginning of my career and I wanted to get into public policy, but I don't have connections and I'm, I don't have a particular affiliation. How would I begin? And, and what are the barriers to entry? <laughs> That's exactly how I started out my career. No connections, not really sure um, what doors to find so I could open them there's a usual route and if we just take the UK for instance obviously I'm, I'm not from the UK I, I grew up in Ireland I, I spent my kind of formative years as a young adult in Asia I've lived in the Middle East but I think a, when I moved to the UK a lot of people had been in politics more generally very passionate about working for a political party had either worked for that party potentially worked for an MP been advisor in some form in government then usually going into consultancy and maybe in-house from there. So there's there's certainly some straight paths that people follow. I myself, I have no political calling. In my country, we our politics are divided amongst very different lines than they are in the UK, but, but even back home, I don't really have a political leaning. I've certainly got principles and beliefs, but they don't really map on to any political party. So I... I really felt that lack of party association and affiliation when I first started working in public policy because you do get a lot of voyeurs in our industry who are interested in politics for politics sake, uh, who are fascinated by electoral systems, um, you know, and, and the mechanics of these things, which is part and parcel of what you need to understand and know. For me, the interest in public policy was always about connecting people who had different ideas so when I was growing up in the 90s, you know, it was really all about globalization and opening up borders and connecting countries. And the Internet, as it was growing, was very much part of that. So I think that's really my canon in terms of working in public policy and why I think you don't have to come at it from a specific, maybe party political background. So what would you say to an outsider about the benefits and disadvantages of not having a political affiliation? Do you think there are two sides to that? Sure. I think uh, the benefit is people certainly don't know where to place you. And I think that's a really good thing. Uh, you know, we all have our unconscious bias and we like to put people in box to say, I understand, you know, where that person is coming from, what they do. And I think being a journalist or having a kind of a broader background, actually, I found being Irish in the UK has been fantastic in that sense, because I've had many British friends say to me that I really confuse them with my accent because they can't place me in a class or a particular type of background because it doesn't map on so easily because it's just a totally different culture. So that has enabled me, I think, to work with broader groups of individuals, maybe who have certain biases than maybe I would if I was from a different background. Joining as part of a political party, and if you believe in the, you know, the principles of that party, that's fantastic. And you can make a lot of great connections. You can learn a lot from people within the party. You might want to you know, serve on local councils, things like that. So there's certainly benefits to it. Um, and I definitely felt those earlier on in my career, but I've always wanted to be someone who proudly sits on the fence. And have you been able to build contacts on both sides of the house? Yes. And because I've always worked internationally, it's never just felt like I have to be, you know, in the UK um, working with the two major political parties. I think I've my contacts are built on, you know, having worked with people in the past on different issues, creating rapport with them. And absolutely, I think it's really important to work across the political spectrum. How diverse is the industry and is it getting better? 
think like most industries, not so diverse. I think I work, I've the, I meet at the nexus of technology and politics. So it's quite white and quite male, but it's certainly changing. You're seeing a lot more women, I think, get into public policy because I think there's a strong communications element. And I think it's quite a useful career if you're a very empathic kind of person, which women traditionally are labeled uh, as being so more often. I think it's opening up a little bit. In terms of diversity uh, beyond gender, I think we, we have a long way to go still. Um, we're no different than most industries. What we need to do is show kids from lots of different backgrounds, uh, different career opportunities and help them think about what they want might want to do stir their imagination a little bit which I can't believe I'm talking about public policy and imagination in the same sentence but you know we have to start uh, showing young people the different types of opportunities that are out there for them and help them figure out how they do something it's not just about going to university what happens after that and what I didn't have you know growing up as someone you know who didn't come from a very wealthy or, or educated background is I had no idea how to practically map my aspirations onto how to get the job I wanted and early on in my career it was really difficult breaking in exceptionally difficult in fact. So when you've recruited into your teams have you looked at people who haven't come from such a traditional background for public policy? Definitely. And they're always they're always the people you remember the most, people who've had different life experiences because I don't want to hire people who are the same as me because I already work there. There's, that's not adding anything different um, to my team or what we can do together. So I'm always looking for people who uh, think differently, who do differently uh, from me. And I, if you're making a product, especially in technology, where that's being offered to people all over the world, then you know you want people in your organization who reflect the people you're making games for or creating a service for. Now you um, co-founded the European Tech Alliance. Can you tell us a bit about that? So the European Tech Alliance is, is quite simply an alliance of tech companies from across Europe, from totally different sectors, who want to be a one-stop shop for policymakers. If you want to understand uh, what's been easy for us in terms of building our business in Europe, what's been difficult, and what do we want more of, what help could you give us, then we're, we're basically the group to call. So we're really just trying to organize ourselves to be a bit more visible in Brussels. I think that's the first step in terms of um, influencing public policy and you know, helping policymakers understand a little bit more and improve their own knowledge of what the tech ecosystem looks like across Europe. So that brings me to the B word. Can you tell me how Brexit has impacted on what you've been doing in the Alliance, but also in your current role? Certainly. Well, well personally, it's just made me very sad because uh, obviously I live in the UK and, and really enjoy living here in London. And my experience of working with the British representation in Brussels has been so positive. They were so knowledgeable. And I think Britain was a great contributor to the EU in so many different ways. So I think we all feel that loss. The biggest thing of Brexit has been about the employees in our business. And uh, we have a lot of Europeans uh, in our London office here in King. We have over 400 people here and, and almost half of those are European like myself. But we also have a lot of British people in our offices like Stockholm and Barcelona. So really helping to clarify as much as possible their rights for our employees and their families, but also in terms of hiring new people and attracting talent from different countries 
that's an ongoing challenge. I would say it's the loss of the British voice on tech issues in Europe is something that we can't measure quite now, but we will see the impact on in years to come. Okay, well, we'll we'll come back and do this again in a couple of years. (laughs) So you've worked for Facebook, as you mentioned, which is a company seldom out of the news. What's it like to be in the eye of the storm? And also, do you, are your personal ethics ever in conflict with the work that you're doing? I joined Facebook in 2012, uh, just before the IPO. And at the time, Facebook have, hadn't even transitioned to mobile properly. So people were still questioning if, may, if maybe Facebook had had its day. Uh, so it was by no means the, the leviathan of the business that we see now. But it was still a, a, a fast growing company with a lot of ambitions. And I would say for the years I spent in Facebook, it was fantastic. It was challenging. It was very difficult. It was stressful. Uh, It was relentless and I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to do it when to have the experience of working in a company that is scaling so quickly, you kind of see the things that have been done well and you learn from the things that you see maybe in retrospect and hindsight weren't being done so well. When you have an American company that's trying to be an international company culturally, uh, you see a lot of mistakes being made, but you also see a lot of great things happening. So I, I never felt my personal ethics were it, called into question while working at my time in Facebook. It demonstrated to me that it's in areas on tech and public policy and creating new rules, there's no black and white. But when you reach the scale that companies like Facebook have reached, you have a huge responsibility to people to try and reduce mistakes as much as possible and to work with policymakers proactively, not just when you get into trouble and you get things wrong. So Linda, at the end of all of my podcasts, I ask all of our guests uh, the same questions and I'm building up a great bank of answers. Can you give me one campaign or public policy area that you want to be remembered for? I think the best is yet to come for me. So I'm hoping I haven't done that campaign yet. A couple of things that I'd like to be remembered for initially. So as you'll know, results in public policy can take years, especially if you're trying to input into a new law or file that's being formed. But um, something does stand out from my time at Facebook. So, so when Snowden blew the whistle on the NSA, I was in the unique position of running policy comms in EMEA. So we had a tiny staff compared to now. And as part of our response to uh, what Snowden was saying, I helped push for and was tasked with actually writing Facebook's first global government transparency report. Now, these reports inform the public about what data governments are asking for and how often and what intermediaries like Facebook do to protect users' privacy versus responding to hopefully lawful requests from such governments around the world. These types of reports now are standard practice, um, but at the time, this was a first for a company like Facebook, and it was fantastic to be involved in something so immense the work it took the internal lobbying it was a complex and highly sensitive piece of work uh, it was ultimately welcomed by privacy international and i was really be i was really pleased to have been part of something that pushed for more transparency and accountability and something that we're able to pull together quite quickly but now is you know updated quarterly and is um, a much better piece of work than who we originally wrote it to be The other thing is the European Tech Alliance. I think we have more to do, but we have 
we have lots of different businesses from sectors all across Europe. And I've never seen such a, a group of interesting tech companies come together um, with such a positive focus. So I'm really happy and pleased to be working with Europe's tech scale-ups in my, in my spare time. And who from history would you most like to have had the opportunity to work with? Well, she's still with us, thankfully, but Mary Robinson, I think. Look, she was Ireland's first female president. She brought an intellectual depth and a legal rigour and knowledge to a role that had previously been ceremonial. But her leadership was transformative for the presidency of Ireland. She had campaigned on really important social issues in the past, on contraceptives and bodily autonomy for women, on homosexuality and divorce, um, at a time where, where you could say history might have been against her. And I think she's had a really fascinating career after that with the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and everything she's done afterwards. So I think it would be really interesting and to work for her when she first took up the mantle of presidency in Ireland. Have you ever had any contact with her? I have, and it's a really embarrassing story. <laughs> oh, oh, do tell. <laughs> well, I'm good with words, usually. And we were at a, an Irish fundraising dinner here in London um, a couple of years ago. My, my husband's also Irish, and uh, Mary Robinson was the guest of honour and gave a talk, and I'd never met her before. And on the way out, uh, my husband quite um, smartly um, zoned in on her husband, who was kind of making the way for her as she left and uh, started talking away to him. And he's, he's had a, a very interesting career in his own right. So we're having a good conversation with him. And, and then Mary Robinson came out and, and my husband, who's a fantastic way of words, was very charming and eloquent. And then Mary looked to me and I looked to her. I grabbed her hand to shake it and I said, thank you. <laughs> And that's all I could say. <laughs> there followed a very, very painful silence. And maybe she thought I was just a bit, I don't know, but um, not. Maybe that's all you day. needed to say. <laughs> yes, there was so much I wanted to say. There was so much in that thank you for everything she had done uh, campaigning on social issues in Ireland. I couldn't quite put it into words. So not my finest moment. What advice would you give to someone just starting their career or looking for their first opportunity in public policy? it's all about your networks and it takes years to build a really good network. Start now, start small and don't be put off by how small it is. I, I understand obviously in times of COVID, it's a lot harder, but I'm hoping that will change and there are ways around it. Um, go to conferences and events, uh, go to networking drinks when we're able to start meeting people for coffees. Uh, it's like saving for your pension, right? You start off small when you're young and you think this measly sum you put away every month isn't really going to, you know, build up to anything, but it does. And so my networks, I think, have been really important in my career. And you've got a personal story, haven't you, to share about how you sort of got your your leg up on the on the ladder. <laughs> yes. So I had been working in think tanks and, and doing some um, kind of uh, temp jobs in the civil service, trying to kind of really make my break to get a permanent job. And I decided I wanted to work in a political consultancy because I felt it would be great experience, lots of different clients, international work, exactly what I wanted to be doing. And again, I was going to a lot of events and um, 
evening drinks and I saw that Rod Cartwright, who was working for Hillen Knowlton or HK Strategies as it's known now, uh, was giving a talk in Parliament. So I thought, great, I'm going to go along there and I'm going to ask Rod to give me a job. So um, we he gave the talk. He was fantastic, really interesting. I essentially cornered him um, at the end of the evening and probably talked at uh, the poor man for five minutes to say how interesting I was and why he should definitely think about hiring me. And he was very polite and kind and said he'd certainly take a look at my CV. And look, we followed up. And thankfully, I, you know, I was on I was the right the right side of pushy. And yeah, Rob hired me. So you've got to be bold in this business. Yeah. Thanks, Rod. What predictions do you have for the future of the industry? I think we're at an interesting time in terms of where public policy sits in an organization. Traditionally in big businesses and especially in the world of tech, public policy either sits in the comms and marketing organization or legal. Where we see that trend going, I'm not quite sure. It's kind of half and half at the moment, but probably tending towards legal. But I'm starting to see it more directly reporting to the CEO. And I think that's a positive thing for public policy. That would be my bet. I think we'll see more CEOs working directly with their public policy leads and understanding what public policy is and not just something that they don't want to have to do, but they want someone else to do them for it. So I'm hoping more CEOs and executives engaging in public policy, understanding the importance of dialogue with policymakers, having a say um, in terms of working with people who will decide you know, the rules for your sector now and in the future. We've already covered one embarrassing story, but is there another most ridiculous or embarrassing thing you've done in the name of public policy that you'd like to share? I'm the soul of discretion. <laughs> uh, however, I it's not a story, but I have earned myself an interesting name in certain circles. So I'm not sure where it came from. And I think it's partly in jest, uh, but I have been referred to as the smiling assassin. Ooh. So make, make of that what you will. I'm going to take it as a massive compliment, but I'm not <laughs> sure what I quite what I did to earn it. But there it is. Interesting. Thank you so much, Linda. It's been really fascinating talking to you. And this is a subject that I knew very little about and I feel much better informed. So thank you. Oh, I'm glad. You've been listening to the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast. If you'd like to get hold of me, I'm on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook with the handle The DSTM Podcast and I'd love to hear from you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and colleagues and don't forget to subscribe for more interesting conversations about careers and communications. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.